Hello, you all. I hope you are staying prosperous, keeping your mind focused, and that you are staying healthy and safe. And today on Now That's Life, I'll be having a special guest who is a longtime friend of mine. We will be discussing many of the injustices that Black women experience in the world of work and in their everyday lives. This is an episode for everyone. I repeat, everyone. I know I have people from all over the world that tune in, but this is still for you, even if you're not a Black woman so don't turn off so quickly I want you to learn something we definitely say we want to learn more help more and do more well this is yet another opportunity for learning even if you're not a black woman I'm going to keep repeating that I invite you to listen reflect if you choose and send in your own responses and thoughts to my email dm me send me a message write on a youtube video do something okay I want to hear your thoughts on this I'm your host, Dr. Nina Ellis-Hervey, a licensed clinical and school psychologist in the states of Texas and Louisiana, a nationally certified school psychologist, a licensed specialist in school psychology, a certified professional life coach, a clinic director, and also an associate and tenured professor. And this is the Now That's Life podcast. And while I want this podcast to be a helpful and a great resource to you, it is not meant to be a substitution for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. I know I'm always thanking y'all just about every episode for your love and support over on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and by email, and also those of you all that signed up for my free A-Day Supernatural video program. I really do appreciate everything you do, and I will continue to thank you because without you, there would be no shows, no 1.1 million following over on YouTube, no liveliness over on Instagram. I can't believe your support, and for that, that I will forever be grateful and thank you. Continue to come on over, continue to share in conversation, share your thoughts, your ideas, because that's how I get the meat and potatoes for what I present to you all. Again, thank you. So today's episode is one that's a little bit more emotional for me because being a black woman, I tell you, there are some complexities to the experience. And I think many people are becoming more in tune and wanting to listen more to the experiences of others being that we are pretty much and mostly a standstill and having to listen to our own thoughts, experiences, ideas, and this is the best time for us to learn. So today I am joined by Dr. Alex, who I know personally, and I'm happy to have her and I'm happy that she obliged to be on the show. And it's going to be a great asset to your learning in this place. You know, we called this episode, she helped me name this episode, the life in the times of the modern black woman. I don't want to be a savior and I don't want to be a mule. You have to say it just like that. And I want to be a savior and I don't want to be a mule. Yes, just like that. I said that on purpose. Okay. Um, so let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Alex because she is essential to today's episode. Dr. Alexandria L. Lockett is an assistant professor of English at Spelman College. She is the co-editor of the book, Learning from the Lived Experience of 
graduate student writers at Utah State University Press, May 2020. She also publishes about the technological politics of race, surveillance, and access in articles that appeared in Cosmopolitan Studies, Enculturation, and Praxis, as well as chapters featured in Wikipedia, An Incomplete Revolution, MIT Press, Humans at Work in the Digital Age, Rutledge, out in the center, Utah State University Press and Black Perspectives on Writing Program Administration from the Margins to the Center, SWR Press. An extended biography is available via her portfolio at www.alexandrialockett.com. So, super happy to have her super qualified for this conversation. And when I say qualified, yes, we're all qualified for conversations, but Alex not only walks that walk, but she does the research, honey. So she understands this topic in and out. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be here today. Like, really excited. I know I say that all the time, but y'all know I do be hype. And I and I did say do be. I am hype even more today because I am blessed to have a guest that I have known for years now. Uh, amazingly, um, so many years. I think when we talked about it, it's been so long since we've graduated from undergrad, but this is none other than Dr. Alex Lockett. And she's amazing. Known her for years. We were McNair scholars together. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt, she's going to be one of the best, if not the best people to have this talk and discourse within this topic, the life and the times of the modern black woman. I don't want to be a savior and I don't want to be a mule. And we know there's so much to be said behind that. And yes, every race has their struggles. Every person of color has their struggles. Every white person has their struggles. But let's be honest, the black woman's plight is a bit different. And we're going to talk just a little bit about that today. And I'm going to have Dr. Alex graciously who I'm so happy to have here. Let me say thank you for being here. Have her introduce herself to you because she is a boss. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Nina Ellis Hervey. Um, I am very grateful to be joining you today. Hello, listeners. I, I know that two academics talking may not seem extremely exciting, but you got to realize that, you know, Nina and I have a long history and it's very rare, I think, for two black women to go to one of the whitest colleges in America. <laughs> and I, and I don't, and I don't skimp words on it. I, I don't know if, 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 if Dr. Nina has uh, illustrated the whiteness of Truman State University, but put it this way, we were part of a 0.08% African American population. Yes, 0.08% more Africans than African-Americans at Truman State University. So uh, you can only imagine how many times people thought plus size Misi back then. Nina had, uh, had begun her transformation, but uh, people always mistook me and Nina for each other. And, and, and we would always just kind of laugh about it. And I was always like, Nina, I'm so sorry people mistake you for me. I don't mind being mistaken Girl. for you because you're so gorgeous, honey. But, uh, you know, I apologize in advance for people mistaking you for me. So, uh, so, she's a, so, so she's a doppelganger of sorts, y'all. 
Um, yes. And, uh, and, and, and yet, you know, we have managed to enjoy a very, a very fun and very interesting, I think an interesting relationship for black women that is very unique that we, um, we have a, a, a very strong bond through McNair, through witnessing each other's uh, professional journeys. We just kind of parallel each other, you know, both were at Truman at the same time. We both went to grad school in Oklahoma at the same time. And now, yes. and now she's teaching and, um, and doctoring in my home state of Texas. Yes. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Not even that far from where I'm from too. I mean, I'm very familiar with where you live. So, uh, so being from Texarkana, so, so I know probably a lot of the demographic of students that you work with, you know, so, so we have a weird parallel life, me and uh, Dr. Nina, but it is again, truly, truly, truly a pleasure to be here. And I'm looking forward to the convo today. Yes, I'm so happy to have you. Yes, so many parallels and and you know, I <laughs> I can definitely say even that last part of the parallel. Like I live mostly in Houston now, but mm-hmm. being in Knack and cool. being back and forth and driving up and down. Yeah, that's why I'm in it's Houston. Rough. <laughs> it's a rough it's a rough side ride. Uh, wow. In that sort of northeast to, to central cuz Nacogdoches is like it's near Texarkana, more so, far more so than Houston, you know, because Texas is, yeah. Texas, every time you say you're from Texas and somebody else is like, I'm from Texas, you're like, this is a huge state. Come on now. <laughs> um, don't, don't act. No, but, but Nacogdoches is really weird because it is kind of a, um, it's a little farther than, go, you know, being at school in Dallas, but just not as far as, you know, being in South Texas. So. Oh, yeah. 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 And a lot of people from my high school ended up, uh, you know, in that city. So, yeah, is and it's more people know it than I've ever known before. So that's an interesting topic in itself. But sure. we could talk about that all day. Location. We definitely want to dig into this, though. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. go for it. We're ready. We're ready. So I am Alex, here for it. Yes, ma'am. Alex, you and I, you mentioned our, our bond and how long we've known each other, 20, almost 20 years yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and just the things that we've come through and how a lot of the things that we've dealt with mirror uh, one another. And, you know, you've been such a light, as I've always told you in my life, as a person who has pushed and challenged me to be no less than who I am and to be unapologetic for it. Um, You know, I think my viewers and listeners sometimes, and I've had to deal with this, believe that people are just born with all the confidence. Now, here's the thing. I always had confidence, always but I think yeah, 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 you, sure. you build it in different ways, right? And then there's a different story to go with that when you're a Black woman, right? So yes, let's baby. dig into this whole idea of what do you think of the comment or, or the quote, mm-hmm. I don't want to be a savior and I don't want to be a mule. What comes to mind when you say that and you think about our journey? Well... When you're at a place like Truman, you know, if we could start at that place, because I think that a lot of our formative development comes from higher education, especially when you're from my, I'm a, I was a first generation college student. So for me, um, coming from a very racially diverse, but very racist and conservative place like Texarkana to Kirksville, Missouri as a black girl. Ooh. 
Um, and as a queer black girl, I should add, because, you know, when I went to college, I had a, you know, I was in a same sex relationship and times were very different than, you know, there was not a lot of love for that kind of lifestyle. And um, especially as a black woman. So I entered Truman uh, with a weird identity. I wasn't like flocking, like I, I tried to be friends with black people, but it was very clear that the black culture at Truman was very St. Louis sort of middle-class kids acting like they were hood. And I'm like, you don't know nothing about that. In Chicago, um, there was the and, Chicago and there was, Yeah, there was a Chicago element. But I never, like, I didn't join a sorority. I didn't go to Black parties. I really didn't really even interact with a lot of Black students until I got into McNair. So, so, so for me, a lot of my identity at Truman was based on being having a queer identity and trying to raise visibility. You remember how activist I was? Yes. <laughs> um, I, like you know, made prison very visible at our school. It's still visible because of the efforts that we did back then, you know. But um, the point is, is you guys have to realize that 9-11 happened the week we came to college. It sure did. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, it sure did. And Aaliyah so, had just died too. That's true. And, and so we imagine that me and Nina are witnessing kind of, now, let's be clear. We had no way of knowing that we would go through like COVID and what we're going through right now. But we we can honestly say, though, for us, that was our COVID moment. You know, that was when the world changed for us was when 9-11 happened that, that first week of school. And, right. and, and it went from sort of this sort of we knew Bush was going to become a war criminal and a horrible person, even though now we're like, he's so eloquent. He reads books. Oh gosh. It's terrifying. It's ter- it's absolutely it terrifying. Is. But the point is. the point is is that I was part of a community that was very marginalized, but I was a black woman operating in that space, uh, isolated from my own quote unquote people. So I found myself constantly having to be in a position to educate people about everything. So like, I'm the only black girl in class, something black happens, Alex, what do you think? Uh, you know, my, my LGBTQ friends, you know, I had to deal with a lot of ignorance from white women lesbians who perceive themselves as more persecuted than black people. Or I had to deal with gay men not really understanding their racism or their sexism because, you know, I had to deal with a lot of sexism from gay men too, you know, because they would make, you know, awful comments about vaginas or, you know, not, you know, and I'd be like, you know, it's, I don't sit around and talk about how dicks are icky. I don't get why you feel <laughs> totally free and comfortable being like, ew, fish, you know? And so I was dealing, yes. I was dealing with a lot of sort of just noticing how everyday language dehumanizes and objectifies people. And, and I found myself constantly feeling the pressure to educate or the pressure to correct people. Um, and so I had to, at some point, come to some kind of peace with myself and say, all right, 
I am from Texarkana, so ignorance is something that I know well. I know a lot of black people right now are tired and I see a lot of social media posts about people being like, go read some books, Google it, nigga. I ain't the one to try to tell you what's going on. And I'm like, and I let, and I put that in scare quotes. I don't bandy that word about. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, you know, I get where they're coming from. I totally a hundred percent get where they're coming from, but at some point I realized that this was activist, that it is activist work. You cannot blame somebody for not knowing what they've never been brought into contact with. And and nothing shows you that more vividly than living in Kirksville, Missouri, where you literally might be the first black person someone meets at a store. Yeah, true. With the year, the year that me and Dr. Nina came to Truman, they had just built the Walmart y'all. Yes. Mm -hmm. Brand new. Just so you know, they had just built the Walmart. Yeah that should hopefully put into perspective the kind of isolation and the poverty of the place that we were in. So you can only imagine retaining black professors as a no at Truman. So for somebody like me, somebody like Dr. Nina, it's like you're always in this position where people are experiencing you like you're this new thing for the first time all the time. Yes. And so when people talk about being confident or when people talk about, oh, you know, you so confident or, 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 you know, you, you're so self-assured. It's like, no, I've just lived a life where I've constantly been othered enough to the point to where I'm not offended when people don't get me. I'm not offended when people don't know things. I don't turn to this visceral emotional reaction. Like it's not my job quote unquote, to educate people. I see it as a privilege when I have the opportunity to talk to somebody that I genuinely know is not just trying to troll me and just argue for the sake of arguing. But, you know, you can tell when someone is genuinely like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you're who you are or what this is about. Can you help me? And I think black people are doing a disservice to some. Let me be very clear. I need to qualify what I'm saying. Some black people are doing a major disservice to social progress right now by refusing to talk to people who really genuinely might be open to change. Right. You know, I know we're tired and I'm not trying to be a savior and I'm not trying to be a mule, but education is my shit. I think people can change if they're given an opportunity to not feel ashamed of what they don't know. Um, it's what you're saying, Alex, that I realize, I realize that you're talking about a balance there, making sure that you understand what your place is, what you know, what your experience is and sharing that willfully, but also realizing that you can, you can help to teach those who want to be taught. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Let me tell you what transformed my life. One thing that transformed my life was when I was at Truman, I participated in a diversity retreat. Mm-hmm. Me and my friend Remy, who's a, a you know a brilliant, artistic, gay Filipino man who occasionally did drag, 
back before RuPaul's Drag Race, back before y'all was feeling all that, okay? So you guys have to understand how taboo it was back then still to be LGBTQ and of color. So, or gender fluid or whatever. And so me, me and Remy got roped into going to this diversity retreat and we did not want to do it y'all like we were like oh my god it's from it was from like seven in the morning to like nine at night it was supposed to be this like immersive experience and i still remember the people who came to it and i still remember the experience um there were like i think maybe like eight or ten of us and we watched ethnic notions and some other stuff. And we had a lot of like really, but what we ended up having are some really raw discussions about difference. And, and I think one of the participants ended up, you know, coming out later on in his life, you know, because of this retreat. And um, one of them um, was in McNair with us, actually Sherry Ritter, um, who's, mm. who is by the way, y'all now a doctor, Who's yeah. carrying this COVID crap everywhere? But you know what? She's so socially conscious, though. You know, she's aware of the health disparities, and she tweets about it. She or you know, Facebooks about it, and and unapologetically, right? But but I think about how formative something like that diversity retreat ended up being for us because I learned things that I didn't know too. Like I didn't understand Appalachian identity. I didn't understand the way the kind of poverty that people in rural Missouri really have to live with and how that affects their access to knowledge and education and a sense of self or the world. Or, you know, I met people who've never left their hometowns ever, ever. Like the, the, the most they'd ever left was like, like Kirksville was the, the epicenter for them because they were from another small town. It's even smaller than Kirksville, like Unionville, you know, or somewhere like that. And so I just, I realize that something like diversity retreats where you really can be in a room with people who do not feel judged to admit what they don't know, who don't think it's going to get retweeted, who don't think it's going to get ridiculed. A lot of transformation can happen. And I still stayed in touch with some of those people who went there Mm -hmm. and because we shared this experience, right. Of, wow, you know, these educational spaces are really hard to foster in a quote-unquote formal environment. And and I think right now the challenge is social media because so much of our behavior is mediated by what we think we're going to post or what we think somebody's going to think about what we think about what we post. And and you and I are kind of, you know, we're in that generation that that straddles the line because I always say I'm, you know, I'm a kid of web 1.0. I, I don't remember an internet where you used your real name, but you know, when people talk about social media being new, I'm like, well, no, well, the web has always been social. It's always had social media. It's just, a, it's just a question of how people try to now monetize it and um, associate that it. That changes the, the, the- and that changes the conversation. So that's, that's and also a big thing. That's right. And it changes human behavior. You know, you, now let me be clear. I am not the doctor of psychology, but I am a doctor of rhetoric, y'all, which means I study meaning and language and culture and literacy. So, right. And persuasion. And, and so philosophically speaking, you know, even black women and especially black women 
are under that pressure of representation that we've always been under, right? Because the issue of how the public perceives us as respectable or not respectable is always at stake when Black women speak in public, because no matter whether you like skin, dark skin, kinky hair, loose curls, whatever you are, if you are visibly a Black woman, one thing that we have in common is that we, when we speak in public, there is a potential likelihood that we will not be believed. Mm. And the second, no one believes no our plight. Anita Hill was a conservative law professor. Didn't matter. And and Cardi B and Megan can make WAP. Doesn't matter, right? We, you know, <laughs> I'm just saying they, you know, they're not the same. But what they have in common is that when they testify about their sexuality or their sex, uh, sexual desire, uh, approbation, it's, it's all treated with the same sweeping dismissal. Likewise, I think the other thing that black women have in common is that the ability to say no is such a liberatory aim for us. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To say no. And and here's the thing, Alex. Over here, we always talk about the opportunity and the ability to say no. I'm always teaching how to say no. Ways to say no, finessing ways to say no. I always call it the nice nasty. I certainly hope that you all are enjoying the show. We'll be right back after this quick break. We are back. Let's go ahead and dive right back into the second part of the show. I feel like you and I also share this and I don't think it's been explicitly said. You know, there's this new uprising that I don't think is quite new. The uprising of the quirky black girl, right? Because I feel like both of us... You know, I was always a weird black girl. I think both of us have always been. We've always been the quirky black girl. And what I mean by that um, is, you know... In meeting you, like you said, there were so many layers. You know, you're you said, uh, I'm gorgeous, you're gorgeous too, Alex. A gorgeous, smart, well, well spoken, you know, spoke up often, um, very opinionated, uh, but yet had this soft exterior as well, you know, with the people who deserved it. Um, and I say that very nicely because I feel like you don't, everybody doesn't deserve our soft or even our hard. Um, so I think that we always kind of had that quirky nature. We didn't care, you know, how people thought about our, our way of dressing, our way of talking, those types Mm -hmm, of things. And mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. we had that in common. And even for me, I might've taken some of the more, what people would consider the cushy conventional route. Um, but I was always a standout well, even in that. Always, and, and, you were always different. I've always was soloed out. So even yeah. though I was in a sorority, you usually still only saw me by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, not only that, I had no problem standing in that. I was often, you know, the the president of different organizations spoke up when I needed to and when I didn't. Right, <laughs> I still right. did. Um, and so I think, you know, this whole uprising of the awkward, because we were kind of the, you know, the the weird ones sometimes, but very oh, respected. No, I, I'm, a, I'm a bona fide weirdo. I was the, I was the weirdo when I when I was in high school. And I had to straddle the line between being someone who was musically gifted, poetically gifted. But oh, also, yes. But we also, have that in common, too. Yes, right? we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> but but I was also 
you know, reading books about the occult and conjure and witchcraft and, and, you know, and I was into alternative music as well as rap music. And hold on, Alex, hold on, Alex. See, here's the weird thing is the more you say, and I think we already knew these things about ourselves, but y'all have to realize we're kind of rediscovering all these things we already uh-huh. knew about each other. Right. I was the fear street kid that loves goosebumps. Oh yeah. And, me too, me too. Oh, I love horror, gothic, thrillers. Yeah. I was in, all, I, I wore all black, black makeup, all that because, but horror it, movies. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was to mask my poverty because you know, my first child, I had my first job when I was 15 and, you know, helping me my, too. Helping my me parents too. pay bills and, and, and I would mask the fact that I couldn't afford school clothes by going to thrift stores and punking it out with pens and holes and patches. And, you know, I tried to make poverty as cool as I could before it was literally like going to cost you now $150 for jeans with a pair of hole with a hole. In it. <laughs> I remember literally buy like wearing holy jeans and trying to make it fashion and like being threatened to get sent home. But Oh, by the way, they can't make masks mandatory. No, no, no. I know. Right. Well, then send your ass home for holy jeans and a goddess shirt. <laughs> and that's, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, high school was, was crazy for me. I was tortured in high school because I was, such a freak. Just awkward. Well, see, here's the thing. I bring that topic up for this reason. I want to ask you before we start wrapping up here, because I have another question for oh, you. Yeah, yeah. How, how is that? Because we've talked about the black woman. We've talked about this modernization of the black woman. And in my idea, that's become, you know, what the world describes us as these professional super, I hate this word strong. God, I hate that. Please, let's take that out. I, strength. I think is relative to different things. So that's oh, why so I want to kind of wash that away. Not only that. Woman well, well, we can't. I think we need a whole nother episode for that. Sure, well, but I, I want to say to, that. I'll try to keep it in mind though with your question. This definition of black women as we've seen it in this world um, has been like this strength and this, you know, stand up and always <laughs> together, always polished. And mm-hmm. even when they're not, they might be shot down for not being on top of things, ridiculed for every little thing. So I bring in the awkward piece mm-hmm. because I also feel like we dwelled in another space, mm-hmm. that quirky mm-hmm. side as well. Mm-hmm. How have you seen that develop with this whole idea of being that strong character or being expected to show up all the time or to be that person that people expect to be the leader of the way all the time as black women are expected to be. How has that played into your story? And how do you think that plays into the story of other young, upcoming, quirky black women as you will, as we see? Yeah. So I want to dismantle some things. So, you know, I was a, I was a real geek, you know, I was a debater, I was in the computers, I was gothy and weird and witchy and strange. And I think it's because, you know, when you think about black children and the way black children acquire knowledge and space, you have to go back and think about the people that you admired or the people you learned the most from or the people that inform your what I call your girlhood literacy right and and you know I grew up with a mentally ill father um you know who who was a veteran and and my mom was a very sweet housewife that didn't contest too much so I had my relationship to the super black woman 
is I thought my mom wasn't superwoman enough. And that, mm. and, that, and that, like, I was like, why aren't you going to college and having two jobs and making my life better? That's what you, that's what TV says you're supposed to do. Why are you, why, and are you, you know, why are you depressed in your room and why don't you, you know, listen to my problems or why? Well, that's the issue in itself, Alex, right? We're so, already socialized at a young yeah, age to believe so, that that's the so, plight of the so, black woman. So I got to tell you, I got to tell you why I'm going a little personal. You know, you're a psychologist, so I feel comfortable doing that here. Um, and I think we overlook psychology and language and the role that that plays in everything. In our, what, oh. and, and I'm going to introduce y'all to a word. It's called epistemology. Epistemology. Epistemology means how we know what we know. And so as a child, what I knew was my mom was not this, you know, Kente cloth wearing, going to college and juggling three jobs and raising three kids as a single mom type woman. She she was not that. And 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 I and I and I had to confront, come to confront my resentment of her for not being that because I because I felt this burden to be strong for her. Wow. And to carry my family with financial and all that. So I turned to the resources. So who did I turn to to develop that sense of strength? I always wanted to be around my hood cousins. My mom did not want me around my hood cousins. She was like, no, 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 no. You can't spend the night over here and here. You can't go to so-and-so house. Uh-uh. You can't go into so And I was always, I always hated because when the few times where she did let me hang out with them, like, they were on a whole nother level of knowledge in my mind, you know, like the way they did their hair, the way they talked, the fast talking, the wit, the just the soul in it, you know, and I'm not trying to romanticize it, y'all, but I'm explaining, you know, what it was like to be like a 10 year old, 11 year old child and see your older cousins dance and see your older cousins talk about boys and see your older cousins, you know, talk shit and in the streets and, you know, doing their thing. It's a kind of freedom, you know, that you witness and you and, and coming from where I came from, my parents really kept us away from a lot of that, even though we were not middle class by any means. Right. Um, because a lot of people do not realize the layers of economic difference in the black community are very fine and very sharp. And they're very and there are yes. so many, you know, so whereas my hood cousins want to come to my house because we they can eat. But I, but they have no idea what like my debate friends' homes are like in Pleasant Grove, you know, like they they can't even imagine, right? Right. So, so the you know I was becoming my consciousness was becoming aware of class, social class difference, and the way that my you know and what people call hood I thought was beautiful, you know, when the black girls would do them braids and you know now you know you get the blue hair and the silver hair and the pink hair go oh they're just cosmic pixies back then it was being ghetto. You want to oh, yeah, put about the color color braids in your hair? Oh, you hood. But see, I thought hood aesthetic was so beautiful. And I always, you know, I like I, you know, I'm looking at total, you know, like a total video with the sh- you know, short hair and t-shirt, you know, like that was it. You know, mm-hmm. I was I was I still love that look, honey. You know, it's but but it, the point is is that, you know, when you're negotiating as, even as, you know, those aesthetics and what's beautiful and what's What's good, I, I saw, to wrap up, I saw a culture of play and wonder and, and, and parents. See, the, the irony of the Black community is you have no privacy, but then you get privacy because there are strict boundaries between adults and children. 
So, so, you know, Toni Morrison always says, you know, one of the remarkable things is witnessing reality from the perspective of a child. You know, she's always thinking about the perspective of a child when she writes. And um, especially in her recent, one of her more recent books, Home. And so I think about how I never kind of lost that wonder of being a Black child and seeing the way the Black community specifically, and let me be clear, I'm talking about my local Black community. So if you're going, well, that's not how my Black community was. Well, I ain't talking about your Black community. I'm talking about mine. (laughs) (laughs) So the way I saw boundaries erected was it was always boys go with boys, girls go with girls. Cause I had uncles like that. And even though they loved their nieces, they were horrible to women. And I watched that go down by the way they segregated us. Likewise, children don't go in certain rooms. You, you know, when certain people are home, you go, you know where you go, you go in there, but it's in those moments that the black children get to have their fun and have their play. Cause they're away from the gaze of the parents, but heaven forbid, like, you know, you, you remember, ever remember like one of the first times you went to one of your white friend's house and, uh, your white friend would be like, close mom, close the door. God. Oh yeah. And I, oh, yeah. And I remember being like, Oh my God, you get to close your door while your mom's home. <laughs> Wait, yeah. I remember that you know too. Because that was something we, we weren't allowed to close the door. You got not close the door. Hell, right. you know what you about to get. But, but, but it was something, but you know, whenever the adults had their company, that was kind of the only time you could kind of go, clo- they closed the door. So, right. so I think, in that environment, I kind of, you know, I experienced a kind of vibrant childhood where I got to really see that if I wasn't going to be the pretty girl, if I couldn't be light skinned and I couldn't be skinny, I was going to have, and if I was going to be the fat girl, cause I was the fat girl, I was going to have to learn how to talk some serious shit to make it. Hmm. And, mm. and I was going to have to have humor and wit because that was how I gained respect from people and dignity from people. So my intelligence was all I knew how to capitalize on in that environment. You know what I mean? And, 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 it, and it got me enough attention and approval and respect to where I could even culti- begin to cultivate something that looked like strength. Because let me be clear, I felt so ugly compared to every other Black girl. It was just like every black girl was pretty because y'all got to understand y'all plus size with your bellies out and your bikinis on social media. Back then, that wasn't the that I would, wasn't the thing. I would kill to be the size I was when I thought I was the fattest in high school. Now, honey, because back then you didn't be fat. People were thin, and fat shaming was just part of it. Okay. So, and that was the least bit overweight, just even the least, even the least, I mean, you couldn't have. And so of course, like people, so I always used to be like, well, y'all can say whatever you want, but the worst thing you can say about me is that I'm fat and y'all got way bigger problems because I can lose my weight, honey. Right. (laughs) You can't grow a personality or any kind of intelligence on that, but you have to learn how to navigate the world of I think the working class with that shit talking because mm-hmm. if you ain't got that ability it, it don't work it ain't gonna work for you you're not gonna survive so what I think I'm taking from what you're saying as far as the plight of let's say the black girl with 
quote unquote layers, which I feel like all of us do because of our experiences, as you pointed out, um, when we think about those layers, those shape what people want to describe as quote unquote strength, uh, what comes off as perhaps an attitude that's different from anyone. Let me, let me stop this here. Yes, I am a psychologist. And let me, hold on. Let me say this. I feel like the thing is, we're always saying we have attitudes. We have, everyone has an attitude, right? It's just the the difference in what you do and what you say and how you say it. I think what you're saying is we're cultivated by a lot of experiences that shape us, that give us depth, that give us lightness, that give us the ability to be flexible. And we almost have to be as a, as a, you know, a shell of survival, not only a shell of survival, but also in order to protect what we do have um, that's different from everyone else. I do want to make a quick mention and I I do want to make a quick gloss to make it make all the sense. Leadership, right? You, Mm -hmm. you know, I think what ends up happening to a lot of people is they, they fall in line. You see what I'm saying? You see who the dominant person is in the group and you want their approval. So you fall in line. Here's where I was a, a very different kind of girl. I, I estimated and figured out very quickly that it didn't matter how straight my hair was. It didn't matter how much weight I lost. It didn't matter how good I was in school. It didn't matter how much money I could give my parents to help survive. I was never enough. It was never good enough. It was never perfect enough. There was always somebody who was, I thought, was like not as like doing the integrity thing as I was who got more praise than me, more attention than me because, well, she light skinned or she, you know, like, you know, if I had like a light skinned cousin that got pregnant early, it was like, she was still bestowed with all the gifts and attention. And I'm like, uh, hello, I'm over here. So I guess I had to, I never really wanted people's approval so much as I liked people to see me as useful. Right. Right. Uh, but but then you just get used and nobody ever really sees you. So I, I responded to that by saying, well, I'm going to be as much me as I like. I don't give a shit what you think. And, and, and it really that's that's how I became alternative black girl. That's why I didn't just turn into me, you know, become, you know, just deciding I'm going to like become so comfortable with home and the bonds with family that I didn't feel comfortable enough going away to college and saying, you know what, guys, y'all are great, but this life y'all living down here, it ain't for me. I need, there's a, there's a much bigger world out there and I'm not afraid of it. You know, one of the things I noticed, and this is a very quick anecdote with black girls, and black people, one of the things I noticed when I went to college was just like how averse I was to like trying new food, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, like that rigidity, that stubbornness is, you know, when you're from that working class background, home and family, it binds people there, man. It binds people there. You can't even visit home without being worried about some shit going down and you're not going back to college. You feel me? You know, so I right. have so the consequence to all this not being a savior and a mule for, for Alex. Yes, I have gained a sort of liberatory consciousness. I do what I want. I go where I want. I feel what I want. I, I express it. I don't feel it. I feel no shame, put it that way. I feel no shame, but I also feel no obligation to get approval from anyone. If I know I'm doing the right thing, I know that the light will come. However, 
the cost was great in terms of it required me to pretty much sever my entire ties to home and family Mm -hmm. because the levels of dysfunction would compromise my ability to have an income success or any kind of independent self. That's the price we pay. Mm. Mm. That's the price we pay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's why it's so important to have your Nina's and your Alex's reconnect y'all because that shared experience is rare and we know it's rare, but there's a lot of wealth and knowledge in that experience that we want to share too, because we know people are afraid to be their quote unquote best self because it's that fear of severance. It's that it fear is. Of severance. And, and, and I think one thing that I always try to say, and you made it hit home here, uh, that I often say is, you know, when you stand apart, you're going to stand alone most times. Most times. But you what my okay mom has that. always said, you got to be okay. What my mom has always said is, you know, from a child, when I was a child, I would say, you know, no one wants to be my friend, even though that mm-hmm. wasn't always true. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that I was standing alone as a person. So it made it mm-hmm. harder for people to want to try to be my friend. That was one of the bigger things. But what I had to realize from that, my mother told me, you know, I'm your friend. God is your friend. Mm-hmm. You got people, you know, and as a child, you're like, what, what does that mean? But as you get older, it becomes no different, y'all. Because even when you have friendships, even when you have family, when you have all of that, whenever you make decisions, especially as a Black woman, and I think, you know, different races can relate to this for very different reasons. However, I'm going to say as a Black woman, um, when you start to stand apart, it throws people off, okay? So what might seem uh, what might seem like silence mm-hmm. and what might seem like you know, ostracizing you might be observing you and trying to figure it out because a lot Mm. of times we give into, if we are not just that straightforward, strong black woman and we have levels and we have layers and we have emotions and we have ups and we have downs and we're okay with showing that, that throws people off. They don't know how to take it because they have this idea of what you should be Mm -hmm. in their mind. So to them, you become an anomaly. And what do you do with an anomaly is you might want to stand away from it because you don't sure. understand it. Sure. Or you want to have sex with it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole different episode, Alex. That's a whole different episode. And no, Alex, no, on no, that no. note. But you know, but you know, that's where the fetishizing does come from. And in private, people want to know in private, it's about the public versus the private too. It's about the way like people will privately treat you with fascination and awe, and even veneration. And then in public, right. dog you out and act like you're nothing. So we- Of course. But, black, but I'm saying black women can really get this kind of treatment because yes. we are, I think, treated as a joke a lot of the time. And it's, and it's painful and hurtful. And, you know, of course, I'm thinking about poor Megan Thee Stallion and her incident mm-hmm. recently. And then I could- Point countless examples, but the way you could be the most, again, coming back, the prettiest, the the most wealthy, the most desirable, and still have your pain and your struggle treated like uh, you deserved it, or what did you do, um, how you're to blame. And so, yeah, like, I just really want to come back full circle to what you're saying, because we must recognize 
how to negotiate our dignity. I got to come back to that word dignity. When you are constantly treated as a tool to be used, or you only see yourself in terms of the utility you can be for other people, and you're not seeing yourself in terms of your own, I'm not talking about Birkin bags or degrees. I'm talking about your imagination, fool. I'm talking about the freedom of your mind to wonder and wander and feel awe and love mystery and and play and fun and pleasure and happiness. Those are things that we are not taught to feel as Black women at all. No, we're not. No, we're not. And some of us, I would like to be willing to say, some of us genetically... And and I think this is going to be our part two. Mm-hmm. Genetically, are predisposed to be ones that experience all of that. And I think I shared this with you, Alex, before. My mother even used to say to me, and I'm an adopted kid, mm-hmm. but one thing she would say to me is, you know, you were always determined to show these different emotions. I was such an emotional child; it was a, right. a lot for my mom sometimes. That's you know, time. and I would be determined. I would tell her right now I'm upset. And yeah. so I'm going to be upset right now. I'm sad. <laughs> so I'm going to be sad. And even for my mom, what I realized she was saying is that black women weren't really given that right to show all that. Yeah, right. Where did the child get that, that from? They slap you in the face and tell you clean up your face. Or, well, my mother allowed me no, the process. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I feel like norm, the norm, like a lot of black women, that's right. the, this is the suppression of that. So I think that's really cool. And I thought for her, it it taught her something mm. is that this child, and even now, you know, I have a range of emotions. I, I do not play happy Sally all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it. Just not going to do it. And and people are thrown off by that. But mm-hmm. it's not my responsibility when I allow you the space and opportunity to be who you are, mm-hmm. allow me to reintroduce myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I think we can, woo, we going we gonna to take them to, we going to take them to that place the idea in the future. Part two about the, the notion of being fake consistency and the multiple layers of black women. I would and love that's to have so that expected. I would love to have that conversation. And I think your listeners would be interested in that conversation because oh yes, the, the poly flexibility of identity, like the extent to which we can express the self, that's kind of the the been, you know, since Tony Cade Bambara wrote The Black Woman in 1970, and it's an anthology that all of you should get, please, because I would argue that. Um, aside from, of course, the ex- extensive amount of 19th century Black women's writing that exists that can also be another conversation for another day. Um, Tony Cade Bambara's The Black Woman in 1970, I would argue that the thoughts in that book, the struggles in that book kind of define the same issues we're still having about yeah. sort of what our identity really means it, when we have such a politicized identity, such a such a degrade, historically degraded identity, and yet we have produced such a wealth of intellectual and cultural production that is constantly being silenced and resurges, being silenced, be resurges, being silenced and resurging. And and I think right now black women are seeing social media for what it is. And I did a I did write a chapter, shameless plug for an article that I wrote that I'm happy to share uh proof copies with 
um, Dr. Nina and, and even do a reading, which is, I did a chapter in a, in a book called Humans at Work, um, labor, and it's about digital labor in, in the 21st century. And my chapter is called Scaling Black Feminisms. And what I'm looking at is the ways in which Black women have always used technology in order to do what I call representation work. So, you know, whether it was the radio, the phonograph, the, the telephone, and now, of course, we're in television, the Internet. We have always leveraged mass communication technologies to be seen because we know how unseen we are. And social media is no exception. So I let me be very clear. I think that um, as Tracy Ellis Ross um, told us, and I did a, an event with her at Spelman College, and one of the things that she told us in our little group was take up space, take up more space. And that's, mm. that's, that's, that's the last thing I will say is, you and I, because we have these big personalities and they're not expected from people and they want to know what is that about? How do, why do you feel so free, basically? Um, that's because our asses take up some space. Now, let me be clear. My ass is taking up a little too much space. Need to, okay. get, out, need to, get, on that Nina, need to get on that Nina, Dr. Nina Supernatural program set. Okay. <laughs> but uh, no, no, no. Well, everybody got COVID body. So... Uh, <laughs> So, so I, but I just want to say with that humor and that laughter and that joy, we got to take up space y'all. And that's, strength. we do. And that's, that's real strength. That's real strength. Cause if there's vulnerability, like what you were saying with your experience with your mother, there's a vulnerability in that. And not, and not a superhumanness. And so Alex, I'm going to ask you this last thing. And this is something I've been asking of all of my guests. Yeah. I feel like everyone that I have on embodies the word dope, but dope means something different for me. And I want you to express in three sentences how you are dope. And my definition of dope is this, destined to obtain prosperity in everything. Let me say that again. Destined to obtain prosperity in everything. Okay. So what does that mean to Alex and how is Alex destined to obtain prosperity in everything? And you can extend on that. How can the audience do the same? And I think you already gave us that nugget, but if you had to summarize it, what would you say? I got three sentences. So I'm going to restrict myself to three sentences because as y'all can see me and Dr. Nina can go on forever. Oh yeah. They know. (laughs) They know. Sentence, <laughs> sentence one, I perceive value in everything. Mm. Ooh, snaps. You can't hear me snapping. Okay. <laughs> Consequently, sentence two, everyone and everything can be resourceful. Mm. Sentence Got three, it. Sentence three, we share what is valuable. We share what is valuable. Wow. So I'm a very Alex. so I'm a very generous person is the point. And and that generosity never fails me to get more chance and more luck in my life. I recognize that like people like me and Nina don't we don't do that. We don't we don't become doctors. We don't we don't go through grad school programs successfully. We don't avoid having children that saddle us <laughs> and I'm not, you know, down in none of the mothers, 
but I, but children are an extraordinary responsibility. We've had the privilege of not having that. Um, we are free in ways that we know a lot of black women are not free, but let me be clear. We fought for it through being generous with our laughter, our resources, what we know. I don't lose anything by sharing what I know with you. And and, so and, true. and that and there's a difference between information and knowledge, y'all, because information is just facts. They can exist without me as a human being. Toni Morrison writes about this in a great essay called The Sight of Memory. Google it. Meanwhile, knowledge is connected to truth. And so if I'm communicating knowledge to you, that means it means something. And that meaning has a value and that value has a substance and it makes you full and it makes us have a purpose. Amazing. Amazing. And, now, and, Alex. and we all as black women have a purpose because the blood that runs through our veins are from people who survive things that we are still trying to grasp. So we all have a purpose y'all and we all have a value and we got to share it unrelentlessly. Yes. And Alex, before we go, first off, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. Secondly, I want to make sure that before we go, these these things will be down in the show notes because Alex has Alex has provided us, or Dr. Alex has provided us with her information. So you'll find that in the show notes, everyone, for you to click on and explore. But I want you to let the audience know where they can find you um, and where's the best place for them to find you all around the web. Yes. Please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Ms. Jane Nova. I'm constantly sharing resources, um, educational resources and other stuff. I don't tend to tweet about things that are too terribly personal. I try to tweet things that are useful. So at M Z J A N E N O V A at Ms. Jane Nova. I'm that on Twitter and I'm most active on Twitter for the public. Excuse me. I also have a website. Very easy to find. Dr. Uh, Dr. Lockett is www.alexandrialockett.com. Feel free to visit my website. It, it desperately needs updating, but it does have a pretty comprehensive bio and a lot of information about me, especially if you're interested in like my recent publications, you want to read my scholarship, uh, learn a little bit more about um, these ideas that me and, and Dr. Nina have discussed today, then I would be ever so grateful. And um, you can feel free to um, contact DM me on Twitter. If you've got any direct questions Uh, as Dr. Nina knows, I am very responsive. So, you know, get at me. Yes. So Alex, thank you once again, and we will definitely be having you on again. And we thank you once again. I keep saying thank you, but I appreciate you. This amazing woman and Spellman professor, just amazing. Um, but thank you again. And we will definitely be talking to you soon with pleasure. I sincerely hope that you all enjoyed today's episode. Alex is one of those people I can talk to all day long. Just one of those interesting people who is well versed, well traveled, well studied, and she just gives the knowledge y'all. I hope y'all felt those vibes today and enjoyed your time. We're going to continue this conversation because I think it's valuable. Yet another conversation that I feel like 
if you are not a black woman, you can still take so many nuggets from, learn, grow, develop in your own life as well, and also learn how to apply that and diversify your own life. And that's it for today. So stay tuned for more. Make sure you subscribe to know when I post my next episode. Sign up for my free e-newsletter at drninaellishervey.com. And you'll also receive my free eight-day supernatural course. And you can find me on YouTube Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All are at the name Beautiful Brown Baby Doll. And that's all from me today, guys. I hope you stay safe. Keep your mind focused. You can still grasp all the wonderful things that life has to offer and do the things that you want to that are necessary to be exactly where you want to be in the future. Continue to plan, continue to grow, and continue to thrive. And thank you again for being here. And hopefully we'll be in again next week. Um, Again, I'm signing out, Dr. Nina. Peace.